Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Today's scripture is from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 11, one of the greatest passages of scripture on generosity. Isn't that amazing? Now, I'm going to be real honest with you guys. You guys know this, those of you who know me. I'm not smart enough to plan this well in advance. Not even close. This is totally Holy Spirit timing. Uh, So, uh, we're going to jump right in here to the message here, and it's all about gospel generosity. This is what Paul says in the word of the Lord. It says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work as well. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. This is the word of the Lord. Before we jump in too much here, I want to thank Kurt Motzinger for bringing the word last week. Didn't he do a wonderful job, everyone? Yes. So last week, Kurt talked about the gospel, the implication of the gospel, that we are to separate from the world and we are to cling to Jesus. Really, the gospel leaves it as not an option, right? We are called as Christians, as Christ followers, to separate from the influences of the world and to make Jesus our one and only influence. He is to be our one and only influence. Uh, So Kurt, being uh, one of the members of our elder board, uh, he brought that word last week. You are going to hear from him again. Uh, That is actually one of the requirements that God gives to elders of the church. One of the requirements that is in Scripture as a requirement to be an elder is that you are faithful to the teaching of the word. So here at the Gospel House, uh, Kurt will bring words. Uh, We also have Mark Hecklinger. Uh, Once greenhouse season is over for the Hecklingers, he will bring a word. I don't think he's actually as busy as he says he is. He just really doesn't want to preach. And so he's trying to find ways to get, I'm just kidding. 
pray for the Hecklingers um, because they are very busy. We stopped out to see them this week, and uh, it was gracious of them to give us five minutes of their time because they're flying around like crazy. So today we are going to move into the implications of the gospel upon our generosity. Everybody's favorite, right? The church gives a giving sermon. We love it, right? No, I think giving sermons are probably one of the most awkward things in the church. I don't know why. I do know why. But people hate giving sermons. Siri, I'm, I'm not talking to you. She did that last week, too. I know, for real. People don't like giving sermons, and we're going to cover why I think people don't like giving sermons, but it, it's awkward, right? I think we'd rather have a whole sermon series on, like, sexual education or something like that, but giving sermons, ugh. no, 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 no. It just feels like the pastor's just begging for money, right? Hey, guys, we've got these big building projects coming on. Here's the giving sermon, well-timed, right? I told you, I promise you, I'm not that smart. I didn't plan that out, but hey, when the Lord gives, he also takes away. So because of this, because it feels like begging, people generally hate listening to giving sermons, right? Pastor Jeremy, I give my 10%. Why isn't that enough? Just leave me alone about it, right? But we have to teach on giving, just like we would talk about anything else, because guess what? Our God is a generous God, right? One of the characteristics, one of the character traits of Jesus is that Jesus was so generous in everything he did. Christ follower, what's your call? To be more like Jesus, to look more like him, right? So if Jesus was generous, what do we have to do as Christ followers? We have to grow more like him. We have to grow in our generosity. So today, that's what we're going to talk about. The gospel implications, gospel generosity. And I really love how Paul starts out on this topic. He starts by bragging on this church in Macedonia, right? And their incredible generosity. And what makes their generosity so incredible? Because they gave so much money? Was that it? That wasn't it, right? Because gospel generosity has nothing to do with the amount but this is what it is. Paul says in verse 2 that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty. Anybody ever been in deep poverty? Their deep poverty. It overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability... And beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. This is a church that is suffering, right? Paul makes no bones about that. A great ordeal of affliction, right? It's not just a little suffering. It's a great ordeal of affliction. It's deep poverty. He doesn't say just poverty. It's deep poverty. Yet, they had joy. Yet, they gave beyond their ability. you got to understand something, and guys, this is going to be a sucker punch. There is a lot of bad teaching about generosity out there. A lot of really bad teaching about generosity out there. I, I'm going to call it out. 
I apologize if you like this book. But there's a book by Robert Morris called The Blessed Life. Pastor Robert Morris called The Blessed Life. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, but it is one of the most wrong books theologically that I have ever read. It's just wrong on so many levels. If you love the book and you would like to talk to me, you can email me. We can set up a meeting. We'll get coffee. I'm going to make you pay because you're complaining, but I'm just joking. But we can talk about it. I can, I can walk you through. We don't have that much time in this sermon, and I don't want to waste my time like that. But, guys, I, I got to warn you. I have a friend of mine. His name's uh, Tim Shaw. He's a pastor just down the road at Sugar Ridge Community Church. Uh, but he actually shared this on Facebook this week. Uh, it was a recent study done by George Barna out of the univer- Arizona Christian University. Listen to this. This is a smack in the face, church. 37%. Do you want to guess what 37% stands for? The number of Christian pastors in the United States who live by a biblical worldview. of Christian pastors live by a biblical worldview, a worldview that is anchored in the authority of Scripture. Guys, you want to talk about, well, the the church needs to get back to, you know, scriptural relevance and, and biblical truth. How in the world is the church going to get back to biblical truth if 37% of the church's pastors aren't living it? Who cares what you're preaching on Sunday mornings if you're not living it? Now, I will be the first to admit, I don't put a ton of stock in a lot of these studies, okay? I've I've read some of Barna's studies, and the way he phrases some of these questions, I feel are intentionally misleading. But guys, even if this number is 80%, even this number is 50%, only half of the pastors in the United States are living what the Bible says to do? This has to be a warning to us, church. You must, like the book of 1 John says, you must test the spirits. When you read a book, when you listen to a sermon, when you look at these Facebook and Instagram posts from these churches, you have to do it critically. You must run every single thing you hear and see and read through the gospel of Jesus Christ because, ladies and gentlemen, pastors aren't doing it. 37% aren't or are (laughs) applying. What's the opposite of that? I'm terrible at math. 67? 67% are not applying the implications of the gospel to the way they live their lives. We have to. We must weigh everything through the gospel. We cannot just assume that people are. So when we read books like this, like The Blessed Life, we assume, well, a pastor wrote it, right? It's got to be correct. And so we just take it all in. I've had a lot of friends, they'll send me sermons, and I send back my critiques of the sermons. They say, well, I wasn't really looking for a critique. It's like, well, yeah, but there's so much wrong, like, what's going on? Well, you know, chew on the meat, spit out the bones. Yeah, but not if I choke and die on the bones, right? But that's our problem. We've become information overload in our culture, so we take it in, take it in, take it in. 
And just because we've got reverend in front of our name, everybody just buys it. Guys, I hope you're listening to my sermons critically. I hope you're going home and reading through these passages of 2 Corinthians and seeing, is Jeremy right? Does God really say this? Is this how it goes? Do it. I'm not scared. And if you find something, please tell me. (laughs) Because most likely it's a blind spot to me, right? That's how we disciple. That's how we grow together. But church, we've got to do this. We've got to do it better because if we look at this scripturally and if you look at this prosperity gospel, the church in Macedonia blows it right out of the water, absolutely destroys it because the church in Macedonia is suffering. And what do most of us do when we suffer? God can't possibly love me and that tithe check goes right back into our pockets, right? What do we do when we're suffering through deep poverty? Well, God's not given. I'm not given. Forget about it, right? What do we do when the pastor says something on Sunday we don't agree with? Yep. Right? We find every reason in the world not to give. But the church in Macedonia is suffering and in poverty, and yet they give beyond their ability. And they don't give because God is going to give it back pressed down, shaken together, running over. We like that one, don't we? The problem is when we read these passages, we don't actually think about what's going on in Macedonia. We don't actually think, well, why is the church in Macedonia suffering? Because we know, right? They just became Christians. And what is happening to Christians everywhere? They're being kicked out of synagogues. And I don't think, I don't think we fully grasp what that meant back then. When these early Christians are kicked out of synagogues, the Romans had a deal with the Jews. You, you go to synagogue, we'll let you continue your religion, you pay a temple tax, we leave you alone. But you know what wasn't allowed? Well, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just not going to worship anything. That wasn't allowed because the Romans needed their tax. And so if it wasn't in synagogue, you had to go to a pagan god. And so these Christians who were being kicked out They know they can't go worship idols because they're not allowed to do that, but they can't go back to the synagogue. So what's left? Run. Run from the Jews who are persecuting you. Run from the Romans who are persecuting you. And where are you going to go? To your family who still believes that Christianity is heresy? Not to your family. What about your business? How do you think that's doing? Ladies and gentlemen, This persecution, this deep poverty, the church in Macedonia isn't giving, thinking, well, God's going to give it back to us tenfold, because it's not going to get any better, right? The prospects are slim to none. Future job employment, slim to none. Financial opportunities, slim to none. There's no silver lining here, and yet they give. They give because God compels them to give. They give because God already gave. They're already living the blessed life, right? And so they give. It kind of destroys a lot of what we're taught in the church today, doesn't it? But this is why we must teach gospel generosity. This is why we have to do this right. I have seen so many people turn away from the faith 
because we teach this prosperity gospel. God's going to give it back to you. You give, and God's going to give it back to you. You give, and God's going to keep sickness away from your house. You give, and your mother's going to get better. You give, and whatever it is. And then it doesn't happen. And unfortunately, the answer that most people jump to is, well, God can't possibly be good. God doesn't love me like he loves you, apparently. And so they walk away from the faith entirely. But the problem isn't that God's not good. The problem is that we've been representing him incorrectly. We've been preaching a false doctrine. And God's thinking, I'm, I, don't, I don't bless like that, guys. I don't bless that. So we've got to get this right. So, let's look at it this way. We've got to look at why gospel generosity is important. We're going to look at what unholy generosity looks like. And then we're going to look at the motivation that the gospel gives us to give. So first, and this is going to be a quick one, why is it so important? Right? And we talked about this in the beginning. This is, we roll our eyes with giving sermons. Come on, man. I give. I give to missionaries. I give to World Vision. I give to all these different places. You're just another hand out wanting me to give. Right? Why do we have to talk about that? But look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. We know this. Every good Christian should be growing in faith, right? Every good Christian should be growing in utterance, right? Do we speak in tongues or do we not speak in tongues? Do we prophesy or do we not prophesy? Do we do it in church or just in people's homes? We should be growing in that. Knowledge. We need to be growing in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of his son Jesus Christ, in the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Earnestness, love. We know we need to grow in these things. Yet when we start talking about money, hold your horses there, buddy. I draw the line at 10%. We don't need to grow in generosity. But Paul says we do. Just as you grow in these things, so that we can look like Jesus, right? In all things. So when the church teaches, when the church preaches, when the church disciples and fellowships and everything else, we should be growing in generosity the same way that we grow in faith. We should talk about generosity the same way we talk about prayer or worship or reading our word. Any spiritual discipline, because that's what generosity ultimately is. It's a spiritual discipline. So we've got to talk about it. We have to grow in it. God's expectation, not mine, this isn't, don't put this on me. I don't want that. Not the gospel house. God's expectation is that we all would grow in generosity, just like any other spiritual principle. But we have to grow the right way. Because if we do it wrong, then we grow the wrong way. And when we grow the wrong way, we start looking more like the world. So can I ask you a question, an evaluative question? Look at the church today. Does it look more like Jesus 
or does it look like the world when it comes to generosity? And that should tell you the state that we're in. Because if we give, if we practice our generosity in an unholy manner, we're going to look more like the world. This is exactly what Kurt preached last Sunday. This unholy generosity. Christians are called to separate from the world and to cling to Jesus. That means that there's only two ways to do this, right? Holy and unholy. You can't put your feet in both camps, right? This is exactly what Kurt taught us last week. This is exactly what the Word says. This is the implication of the gospel on how we align in this world. You cannot live. What fellowship does God have with darkness, right? That's not Jeremy, y'all. That's not Kurt. That's the Word of God. Stop trying to live in both camps. Now, this doesn't mean, I don't, I don't like this, I don't like the Christian versus secular well, we only eat at Chick-fil-A because that's Christian chicken. Popeye's is secular chicken, and we don't eat that. That's not what that means, right? Holiness is a posture of the heart, okay? Now listen, if God convicts you, if you don't like that your money that you pay when you go to Starbucks supports different things, that, that's between you and God. Work that conviction out on your own, okay? But don't you dare judge somebody else because God hasn't worked that same conviction out on them. Okay? Christians, we've got to do better at that. That's something we have to do better at. Your convictions are your convictions. All right? But don't put your convictions on someone else. Let the Holy Spirit work on that. Okay? So, sorry, that was for free. There are two ways to do things in life. God's way and man's way. This is the difference between good advice, which is man's way. Oh, that's great advice. Cool, I want God's advice. Good advice is not always God's advice. And we have to stop settling for good advice in all areas of life. We have to stop settling for man's best. And that includes how we give of ourselves, of our time, and of our possessions, of the things that God has gifted to us. Paul gives this absolute gem in 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, says this, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. The problem with this passage is that the church has learned expertly how to twist people's arms with this, right? We have learned how to twist this scripture to make it do what we want. If you give sparingly, God's going to give sparingly back to you, right? But if you write a big old check when service ends today, God's going to give it back to you, right? Talk about an investment, but that's a horrible motivator, right? Guys, that's terrible motivation. I, I have heard, and, and it's not, not just sermons, but I've heard so many, like, you know, before the offering, somebody always comes up and talks about the offering. How many times has this verse got pulled out, right? Like every week, every other week at least. And this is the motivation we give people. 
right? But it's horrible motivation because number one, the biggest, this isn't the gospel, right? Show me, where does it say that? Where does it say Jesus went to the cross because you did something for him? Huh? We know that when it comes to spiritual principles, right? We hit on this a lot. Why do we make things from the Bible that, well, this is a spiritual principle, but this is physical. Money's physical, so we don't have to apply those spiritual principles to this physical. Where's the Word of God say that? We want to apply the Word of God to every part of life, right? And so that goes with motiva- or the motivations in our generosity as well. There's this teaching from Jesus in John 14, 2. It says, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. I have found people who love the message version of the Bible, New Living Translation, NASB, no matter how, what other version they're in and how ingrained they are in that version, they always jump back to the King James version of that translation. Because the King James Version is the only one that says there are many mansions. It's actually found, been found out to be a mistranslation because every other translation says dwellings. In my Father's house there are many dwellings. But we love mansions, don't we? Has anybody ever heard that one preached? Guys, you give to the kingdom today, God's going to add a room to that mansion. Right? But We laugh, but it's true. I've heard it. Because we love mansions. She's going to get another gem in her crown. Because we love getting stuff when we do things. But listen to what Jesus also teaches. You're not going to hear this preached anywhere. Luke 17 Jesus says this, Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourselves and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all things which were commanded, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That's Jesus, y'all. That's what Jesus says. That's not very fair, Jesus, right? Where's my participation trophy? I want one. But ladies and gentlemen, we get so much more than mansions. We get so much more than a jewel in the crown. I love the story of the prodigal son. You know, the, the, the one son goes out and spends all of his money and then comes back. The father's excited, so he throws a party for him. But the older son gets mad, right? The older son says, hold on a second, Dad. I've been here this whole time. I've always done what you've told me to do. I've, I've been the perfect son for you. This other son of yours, he goes away, spends all his money on prostitutes and all this crazy stuff, and then he comes back and you throw him a party. What the heck? And what does the father say to him? He says, my son, you have always had me. Not wealth, not mansions, not crowns. Church, I think that's the call of Jesus today. You have always had me. Stop living for mansions. 
and crowns and things of this world because you've got the greatest prize. I think the church unknowingly has undercut the glory of God because we've made heaven about endless ice cream bars and mansions and all of this stuff. But God is enough. This is what unholy generosity looks like. Unholy generosity gives out of surplus. Call this tithing. I'll hit it, don't worry. Gives under the compulsion of man, church guilty. Gives to get, or investing, and then buys out, or buys God out, purchasing your own rights. So giving out of surplus. This means that you only give what you have. It takes the tithe and makes that the only financial requirement when giving to God. But ladies and gentlemen, go back and read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. Was the tithe the only thing that they gave in the Old Testament? It wasn't, right? Not even close. First, they gave their first fruits, right? Before any of the harvest, like before the completion of the harvest, they took the first part of that harvest and gave it to God, not even knowing if they would get anything from the rest of the harvest, right? So they gave the first fruits. There were sin offerings, guilt offerings, peace offerings, come to the temple and celebrate offerings. I don't know what else, but there were all these offerings that you were continually offering things for, paying things for, giving your animals for. They had festivals and feasts where they always gave, and they tithed on top of that. But we love the tithe. Because if we're being honest, it's legalism at its finest, isn't it? Because if I give 10%, God can't ask me for anything else, right? Well, Jesus, I gave my 10%. Don't you dare ask me for anything else. We check that box, right? It's like the Ten Commandments. You know, well, I didn't murder anybody today, so I'm good. We did it. But that's not what Jesus teaches, is it? He says, don't look at someone else with anger in your heart. He says, the Ten Commandments, that's down here. I want you up here. And the same thing goes with our generosity. I know I'm being a little bit hard on you all, so let's be hard on the church. That's fun. But number two, we give under the compulsion of man. How many of you have seen, this is an older commercial, but that Sarah McLaughlin commercial? The arms of the angels fall away. And there's all like the sad dogs that, you know, and all that stuff. And so they, but they do this, and it's a tearjerker. Like, I'm sitting there weeping, and I don't even really like dogs all that much. But, but like, they want your money, right? Hey, look at all these. Your money can go to help these dogs. It's like, oh, yes, I'll give you everything. Just stop singing. Missionaries are no better. <laughs> churches are no better. As the church has applied these modern marketing tools, we know which heartstrings to pull, right? And so we show pictures of orphans, you know, with, with bellies empty. And we do all these things, and we guilt people into giving. And that's not right. Actually, if you go through and read 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8, 16 to 24, read it when you get home. 
that entire section, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth about the guardrails he and Titus have set up to make sure that they handle their money appropriately, to make sure that they don't, like nobody's going to run off with your money. We've, we've got guardrails in place to make sure it gets delivered where you want it. And then when we get it there, we are not going to spend it on unholy things. We are not going to buy new donkeys. Those are their cars back then, right? So we're not going to buy new donkeys and horses and camels for us to, you know, street race through Jerusalem. We won't do that. We will spend it on holy things because you gave it for holy things. And I think this is the problem that a lot of us have with church giving sermons. Is that ultimately at the end we either don't like or we don't really trust how the church is going to spend its money. We don't trust that they're going to be faithful with what we're giving. And so that 10%, well, it better be enough. What's your pastor need a car that has windows that work? Lavish lifestyles. Come on. But look at this unreal expectation we get from Scripture. This is the kind of church I want to be, y'all. This is from Exodus 36. They're building the temple, getting ready to build the temple. And he says, They received from Moses all the contributions which, which the son, sons of Israel had br- brought to perform the work and the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing, and they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work, which the Lord has commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and the proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contribution of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more, for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. Can we imagine a church doing that today? I think that's the problem. We can't. Capitalism isn't always the good guy we make it out to be. Because there's always bigger. There's always better. More to buy, more to build, more to do. And as congregations have bought in to this competitive church market, we feel like we've got to build up the church so that we can compete with other churches, right? Well, I've got to compete with the church down the road that's got smoke and lights and, you know, all that stuff. I've got to build or compete with the church down the road that's, you know, building all this stuff. So we need more, and we get more, but it's not enough. But what if? What if the Gospel House was that kind of church? What if we had some enormous pouring in and we said, hey, y'all, praise God. We met our budget goals for 2022 already. Stop giving. Find a missionary somewhere and support them for the rest of the year. Find another local church that's struggling financially and support them for the rest of the year. But we're good. We did it. Wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, number one, what an incredible miracle of generosity, right? But that is the kind of church that I want to be. And let's be honest, that's the kind of church you guys want to give toward, right? A church that's going to say, we have enough. We're good. 
Let's bless some other people. Let's find another way to be a blessing. Let's give your money elsewhere. I bet you'd listen a lot more to giving sermons if that was the kind of attitude, huh? So let's do it. Let's be that kind of church. The third thing we see on the list is giving to get. This is investing. This really is the entire principle of the blessed life. Now look, if you talked to Pastor Robert Morris and said, hey, I just don't really like how you make it look like if I give this much, God's going to give me back double. He would say, you're right, that's not how it works. But when, in the book, you get example after example after example of, I gave God a car, he gave me a plane. Susie gave him $10, he gave Susie $10 million. I sold my house and gave all the proceeds to God, he gave me a condo down in Florida with a timeshare in Jamaica. When those are the examples over and over and over again, you can say, well, that's not how it works. But, but isn't it? But see, when we're investing, when I am giving to get something back, that's not giving at all, right? Do you know why when you invest in stocks, they don't give you a tax refund? It's because it's not a donation, right? On Wall Street, I'm not donating, right? I'm expecting something back, correct? So why do we treat God that way? Sure, God, I'll give you this much, but I expect twice as much back. That's an investment. It's not generosity. But cryptocurrency, that's the new big thing, right? If I buy cryptocurrency, am I generously giving to the cryptocurrency makers? I don't even know how all that stuff works, but I'm not, I'm not being generous to them, right? I'm investing. So stop investing with God. Not like this anyway, because it's against the gospel. God doesn't want us investing. And then finally, number four, and I think this is a big one. I think this is an undercurrent. I don't think any of us really want to admit that this is the real reason we don't give, but I think it is. We give so that we can buy God out. You know, you hear about those like CEOs and Major League Baseball players and stuff, like they, they'll buy out their contract, right? They pay so that they're not under the ownership of whatever company or baseball team or whatever anymore. That's what we try to do with God. Because we say, God, hey, I, I tithe. You can't ask me to do anything else. This is the problem with missions departments in churches. God, I give to missions. I don't have to be a missionary. Listen, I give the gospel house money. I don't have to proclaim the gospel. Pastor Jeremy does that. That's his job. Let him do it. But that's not how God works. At the core of that, I give so that I get to keep my life the way that I want it. Is that really how God operates? Is that what the gospel says? I give enough and I can get out from under God? It's not. At the core of all of these, Unholy generosity is any generosity that is given with the wrong heart, that's given with the wrong motivation. And in Scripture, there is only one motivation. There's only one motivation that we are to use for all of life, and that motivation is the gospel. The gospel is your motivation to give. It is your motivation to be generous. Not just with our money, 
Ladies and gentlemen, this isn't a sermon about giving to church. This is a sermon of being generous with your entire life. Your DoorDash driver, you should be just as generous to him, as, him or her as you are to the church. If you can't afford to be generous to your DoorDash driver, you shouldn't be eating out. But we're called to be generous with our entire life, with the way we spend our time. I'll be honest, I can be real generous with my money. I don't like being generous with my time. That's what I struggle with. My time is mine, and I like to keep it. And so that's a struggle for me. I need to let go of that, because my time isn't mine. The gospel says that my time is God's. Jesus paid for it. Jesus bought it, and I belong to him. We hit on this verse a lot, probably because it's the core of the gospel. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. We talked about this in the first week of this sermon series in Corinthians, but Paul says, we are comforted, why? Or we, I'm sorry, we comfort others, why? Because he first comforted us, right? So why do we give? Because he first gave to us. This is our motivation to be generous. We are blessed not because we give, but because we are blessed, we give. That's the gospel. That's the well that our generosity has to flow from. And really, it's the only way that we can give cheerfully, right? It says God loves a cheerful giver. It's what's so funny to me when these churches preach these sermons. God loves a cheerful giver, so just put a smile on your face and give that tithe check. It's not going to work, right? Because you got a bank foreclosing on your house, and you got car payments that need to be made, and you can't even afford to put gas in the doggone car anymore because it's so expensive. You're telling me I'm supposed to cheerfully give with all that going on? Not with that motivation, but with the gospel as your motivation. And look, it's interesting because look at what Paul does in the middle of these two chapters. Right there in chapter 8, look at what he smacks in there. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel, y'all. Right? That's your motivation. Look at how Jesus chose to spend his wealth on you before you did a thing for him. Right? While we were still sinners, Christ generously gave his life for us so that we might become rich. So let's compare and contrast here. Instead of giving out of surplus, the gospel gives regardless of circumstances. Instead of giving under compulsion of man, the gospel gives under compulsion of God. Instead of giving to get, the gospel sows into God's kingdom. And instead of buying God out, we give because of God. See how flipped that is? It's almost polar opposites, isn't it? But that's how far the church has gotten away from what the gospel says about giving. First, gospel generosity gives regardless of circumstance. This is why it's so much more than just tithing. You know, if we're looking to the Old Testament for a principle of giving, uh, the principle of gleaning is much more close to New Testament giving. Gleaning comes from Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. 
It says, now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. What's God saying there? Now, you've got to keep in mind, these are all farmers, right? So their profits were all in their crops. So God is saying, reap your harvest. You worked for it. Reap it. Right? But don't you dare maximize your profits at the expense of the needy and the foreigner. Right? Keep what you need. You can even keep a little more than what you need, but you cannot ever keep it to the point where it causes you to not be generous. You must always leave back enough to be generous, enough to see needs and respond to those needs. Look at this, this characterized perfectly in the Acts 2 church. Everybody always says they want to be an Acts 2 church, right? The Pentecostal churches. What they really mean is they want people swinging from the chandeliers and you know crazy gifts of the Spirit stuff going on. That's what we mean when we say it. But do we really want to be an Acts 2 church? For reals. Because this is what an Acts 2 church looks like. It's one characteristic. Verses 44 and 45. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. This is where the American church stands up and says, Hey, Jesus, be careful. You're getting pretty close to socialism here. Jesus, don't you know? We don't talk like that in our churches. But guys, what did the Acts 2 church do that was so powerful? They made sure that there was no hindrance to being generous. And, and we're told later in the book of Acts that in this New Testament church, they gave so powerfully that there were no needs among them. Can you imagine being that kind of church? that you give so generously that there are no needs among the church? Everyone was taken care of because everybody's selling off their stuff. Oh man, we don't have enough to be generous and help Kathy out with her stuff. Let's sell the house. Well, where are we going to live? God will provide something. But let's take care of Kathy. Let's put others' needs ahead of ourselves. Let's sell off that donkey you know, we got the upgraded version, the V6. We don't really need that. They gave and they sold. They did everything in their power. This is the word of God, y'all. This isn't, this isn't man's teaching. This is God's teaching. They gave everything in their power to make sure that they could respond to the needs around them. Are we doing the same? Or are we clinging to that 10%? Finishing off the list here. Giving under the compulsion of God, not man. You don't need to be guilted to give. And please don't think that I'm guilting you to give today. You need to give out of obedience to God. Because if it's outside of obedience, there's no blessing in it. You've got to give out of obedience to God, to look more like Jesus. 
it's not cheerful to give any other way. But when we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we understand what Jesus did for us, then when we give, when we're generous, that's our praise to God, right? When we really understand what Jesus did, we give our entire life our time, our talents, our resources, we give it all for him out of praise to him. We rejoice in what God has done for us and we rejoice in what God is going to do through us. And that gets us excited, right? You guys have been there, right? You get excited to partner with God. And that leads us into number three. You give so that you can sow into this work that he's doing. But here's the thing, it's an investment but it's not an investment that I'm expecting back to me. It's an investment to grow his kingdom. And we talked about this. How does God grow his kingdom? Through relationship. So our investment is to build relational fruit as we seek the needs of others, as we respond to the needs of others, but also as we respond to God and we grow that relationship with God because ultimately that's number four. We give not to get out from under God, but to draw closer to God. Our generosity is all about becoming more like Jesus. And the more we draw closer to him, the more we behold him, right? We talked about that two weeks ago. As we behold him more clearly, we start to look more like him. That's what's going to be so great when Jesus shows up, is that in a moment, we're going to see him perfectly. It's not going to be any questions anymore. It's not going to be dimly as in a mirror, but it's going to be perfect, and we will become like him because we will see him perfectly. But we don't have to wait because as we draw closer to him now, we can start looking more and more like him from glory to glory as we behold him, as we look more and more like him. And as we look more like Jesus, we will grow in generosity. And as we grow in generosity, it'll draw us closer to the Father, the Father who gave so much for us. John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave, right? This is who our God is. Just like holiness, power, perfection, wisdom, omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, all the omnis, just like those are who God is, so is generosity. Our God is a giving God, and he expects his people to be a giving people. So Gospel House, let's apply this. Let's apply this implication of the gospel. And that's really our altar call today, right? Give generously. I am not going to guilt you into giving, and I'm even going to throw down the gauntlet. Ladies and gentlemen, God is faithful, right? Gospel House, he has been so faithful every step of the way. Anytime this church body has ever had a need, God has responded to it immediately, without question. You know what that means? That means I don't have to guilt you into giving because I know God's going to take care of us. So I want you to pray because we don't want to give under the, the, by man's ways, right? 
We don't want to give out of guilt to man or anything like that. We want to give according to God. What does God say? So we're going to spend some time right now, and I just want you to pray and ask God, God, how can I be generous for you? Is that my time? Do I need to up the ante and give more than what I'm giving right now? Is there something I have superfluous that I can get rid of? But how can I step up? How can I grow in generosity today? And look, if you want to give to the gospel house, by all means, give to the gospel house. But look, if you don't trust my motives, give somewhere else. I want you to look more like Jesus. I don't want your money. So wherever that goes, ask God and see what he wants you to do where he wants you to give, how much he wants you to give, what he wants you to give. And let's not do it just one day. Let's make it a lifestyle. What if our entire lives, what if, look, I love going on vacation, right? My kids love going on vacation. I love Netflix and I love the streaming services and I love $10 drinks at Starbucks. But what if, Sowing into God's kingdom gave me that much joy as a vacation for my entire family. What if it gave me more to where our family doesn't even want to go on vacations anymore? We just want to buy cows for people over in India. But for real, God can do it, but the only way he can do it is by revealing the gospel in your heart. So we're going to ask God, and, and I, I, want to, I want to add a little accountability on this too. Pray, listen to what God says, but then after God speaks, tell somebody. A lot of times with these altar calls, the problem we have is there's no accountability. And so, you know, we make these decisions for Jesus, and we say, all right, Jesus, I'm going to serve you with everything, and then we walk out the door, and it's like, oh, shoot, I forgot to pay the bills. And we, the slips our mind, right? We forget. So with this step of generosity, tell someone you trust. Tell someone you know is going to put the screws to you, right? Tell somebody that you know. Miss Janet's a great one. She'll get you every time. But tell somebody that you trust, that you know, that's not going to let you off the hook, that's going to see you next week, and they're going to say, hey, did you, did you give that money to that missionary that you said you were going to do? And when you say no, they're not just going to be like, oh, that's okay don't worry about it. They're going to say, well, come on, let's, let's do this. Let's do it right now. Come on, let's do it. But add a level of accountability to it. Because as we add accountability, it's going to change. It's not just going to be a response to an altar. It's going to be a lifestyle change. Jesus Christ gave. Gave up everything that he had, all of his riches, and became poor so that you might become rich. How are you going to respond to that gospel today? Let's take a minute to pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you are pointing to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you. And remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.